Hi, my name is Heather Shorin Yeruso, and this is the Spark Zen Podcast. Thank you for listening. It is my great pleasure to be in conversation today with Reverend Zenshin Florence Kaplow, who has served as a minister of Unitarian Universalist congregations in Washington, Colorado, and Illinois. She's also a Soto Zen priest in the Suzuki Roshi lineage, like myself, and she is the co-editor of the book, The Hidden Lamp, Stories from 25 Centuries of Awakened Women. Thank you, Florence, for being my guest today. Well, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Although we've never met, I have been using your wonderful book, The Hidden Lamp, for many of my Zen in 10 Wednesday postings about the female Zen ancestors. So Mm -hmm. I'm just curious if we could start there with this book, which has really affected, I am sure, hundreds and hundreds of women's lives, especially women who consider themselves uh, Buddhist practitioners. Could you talk a little bit about how the idea for this book came into being for you and for Sue Moon, your wonderful co-editor? Absolutely. I love talking about the hidden lamp. <laughs> so I, my formal Zen practice started in about 1990, obviously for Sue, well before that. And I don't think anyone could practice Zen for very long without noticing that at that point, the lineage that was chanted at San Francisco Zen Center every morning was all men. The stories that we heard in Dharma talks were all men. You might think that women hadn't been practicing for the last 2,500 years. And then in the late 90s, I was in the Bay Area and the wonderful Joan Sutherland, who's in the uh, lineage with John Terrence and Aiken Roshi, was collecting koans, stories about women from the Zen lineage. And she offered a little study group at City Center. And it was almost word of mouth. It was a very informal group. I'm sure it was through a friend at Zen Center that I heard about it. And I just thought, I can't miss this. And I went in. I mean, there were literally, I think, maybe five or six of us. And she brought in koans that she had found. And I remember the very first time they were all koans about grief. And I thought, oh, my goodness. I've never seen koans about grief before. I've never seen emotions dealt with in this way. Actually, the the one that really got me is is the one that in The Hidden Lamp, the one that Sue Moon chose to write about, which is about the the grief of a grandmother who is also an enlightened student of Hakuin. At that point, Joan was planning on putting together a collection of these. But other things happen. Life happens. There are other things that she was working on. She ended up doing a big new translation of the Blue Cliff Record. She had other things that were important to her. And the Book of Women's Colons did not appear. And I kept longing for it. And so uh, 
fast forward about 10 years or so, and Norman Fisher at Everyday Zen, he has a weekly seminar. And the theme of that seminar for the fall was women's practice and teachings. And I was sitting there and I thought, there's still no collection <laughs> of these stories. And so I went out and just started collecting. When I got up to about 75, I thought, I can't just keep these as my own private collection. <laughs> and so I reached out to Sue, who had done a lot of editing, a lot of writing. I, I also have been a writer and editor, but not to the degree that she has. I knew this was a bigger project than I could do on my own. And I asked her if she wanted to work together on it. And she did, which was fabulous. And so we started working on it and had the idea that we would create something that is resonant, let's say, of the form of the great koan collections. Really audacious of us, actually, of the great koan collections from the Song period in China, where often there would be a hundred or 50, and then each one would have a commentary, usually by one person through the whole uh, collection, but that we wanted in the spirit of recognizing the diversity of voices of women to bring in many women teachers. And not just from the Zen tradition, but from other traditions as well, and from around the world. And so we ended up with a large collection of koans, gleaned sometimes from paging through books in the basement of the Bancroft Library at UC Berkeley. And then we started contacting teachers from around the world to ask if they would be willing to be part of this project. And that's how the book came to be. We went to Wisdom Publications which is a nonprofit press, and talked to Josh Bartok. And he said, books on women in Buddhism do not sell well. And he said, and this is a ridiculously ambitious project. I, I don't even know how you're going to pull this off. But if you pull it off, we'll publish it. And so that's how Wisdom ended up with the book, which has had many printings at mm -hmm. this point. It's one of their more successful books. <laughs> For me, what comes up is, I don't know Josh Bartok, but also, oh, there again, there's a male gateway. <laughs> That's right. The, the men, and I'm not sure who was at Shambhala, and obviously there are presses that have introduced many millions of people to Buddhism, of course. Uh, so, yay. Yes. And I feel, you know, given my um, generation as like the vanguard of the Gen X, I was born in 1967 how different Sue's generation, because she's in her 80s, your generation and my generation experience of patriarchy mm -hmm. is, it's surprising to me how, what it seems to me sometimes, how incremental change has happened in, in that area. And so this book, which I, I bought a while back, has really just been, as it has for other people too, a wonderful, inspiring and edifying resource. And I'm wondering, so thank you for that. And I'm curious, what is your, what is your insight into why is it that there are so many, there's, there's a hidden lamp in every religion, women 
being kept in the shadows, kept in the basement, not being part of the authority of religions still today in many different religions. What do you feel like? I mean, I know this is a gigantic question. At least you could you could speak to it on the Soto Zen side if you'd like to, or just a general comment about what is it that seems that this insidiousness around women being held down in religious organizations. First, I just, I want to address what you said, which I think is very interesting about generational change and celebrate how much has changed. So for instance, I remember when Sue and I spoke about the book at City Center. So this would have been about 2013 when the book was coming out. There was a woman there who had started practicing Zen in the 1960s. And she said the first time she saw a woman on the teaching seat giving a Dharma talk was 1985. Wow. Wow, exactly. And then I was thinking about even in the 90s, had I been somehow inspired to work on this book at that time, I don't think we could have necessarily found 100 teachers, even going across traditions. And now there are women teachers all over the world and many women teachers. I mean, at the, so Blanche Hartman was, I believe the first woman abbess of a major Zen center anywhere in the West. And now of course we have, we have many. And the book has been now translated into a bunch of different languages, Italian and German and Polish, and somebody's working on a Portuguese translation. And in every case, they've had teachers, Zen teachers in those places who added commentaries, reflections to the ones that are already in the book. So I just feel like it's almost, I don't know if it's exponential, but it's a really, really dramatic increase. And with that, comes the possibility of some really different dharma. I do a lot with Upaya Zen Center, of course, founded by Roshi Joan Halifax. And we were just talking today about how their approach to practice is Robai Shin, which is grandmother mind. And she's, she's 80. That yeah. warms my heart to hear that in these other countries where the translations are happening of the hidden lamp, that there's actually women teachers there who are able to speak in that native language and offer their own dharma for for the book as well so yes um, it's that's, it's in, that's incredible and to think that that's changed that dramatically in the years that i've been practicing so there's that and then i think your question about why why does this happen if i think about what I know about the history of women's practice, say from the Buddha on. For one thing, it's incredibly obvious from the literature that there were powerful women practicing at the Buddhist time, having major insights, teaching, working with other women, and that you can see that at every step of the way within, within Buddhism, which is what I can really speak to. The story that we have about women being allowed to ordain within Buddhism is a really painful story because, however, it does come down through the line of 
the most rigidly monastic sect that developed a little later after Buddha's lifetime. So we don't really know what happened, but Buddhism has always had a really, really strong monastic component. That monastic, or even the centrality of monastic life, that monastic life was in up until very recently a celibate life. There were monastic opportunities for both men and women, but men saw women as a direct threat to their celibacy. There's plenty of evidence of this, <laughs> including places in Japan that didn't even allow women to enter the, the general area of the monastery. Dogen mentions that in his attaining the marrow by bowing, he talks about people who won't allow women into their practice space and just saying that that's not the Dharma, that's not what we're practicing. So it was um, wonderful to read that fascicle and hear him lifting up women teachers. And yet still, there's a division in Japan where, where women and men can train. Yeah, I mean, the fact that Dogen was a 13th century Zen master who absolutely saw into the insanity of this male fear and hatred of women and of women's sexuality. And there's one part of that fascicle where he talks about how if a man won't look at a woman, if a monk won't look at a woman because she might evoke desire, what about all the other things that could evoke desire? Clouds in the sky, <laughs> everything, everything would be a source of desire. You wouldn't be able to look anywhere. And Florence Dogen also says, what about women who desire men? So is it then the men's responsibility or are the men at fault? So it's, it's right. quite a progressive view for, yes. you said, this 13th century Japanese monk who yeah. lost his mother very early. And of course, that affected his life in many ways, unfathomable ways. And I think this is, happens in the transmission of any religion from one leader to another leader when there's many disciples. It gets distorted. It gets refracted through our karmic conditioning and that the Buddha nature that runs through all of us somehow is runs is greater in men and lesser in women, right? And, and that's what he's addressing, saying very no, that's, directly. That's not the Buddha Dharma. And right. those people who those men who practice this are not are not practicing Buddhism. I'm not a hundred percent sure of this, but I'm about 90% sure. So when Suzuki Roshi, founder of San Francisco Zen Center, was at university and doing his thesis, and he went to a Buddhist university, that actually he chose that fascicle to write about, the Raihai Tokuzui. It's interesting to me that from the very beginning of his time in the United States, he had very serious women students and obviously recognized the power of women's practice himself. So that's, that's encouraging because I was the 1950s, <laughs> not known as an exact high point of, of uh, women's, women's lib. <laughs> of women's lib, exactly. So that's encouraging. But I do think, so I think there's that. And there are these incredible stories of women so determined to practice 
in monasteries that were mostly male, that they actually scarred their faces in order to enter. I was going to ask you about that. Rionin scars her face. Could you talk a little bit about how you understand that koan? It strikes me as, of course, very sad that getting back to Dogen's comment about desire, that somehow it's responsibility of women that men don't desire them. And that's, Absolutely. that's been a pervasive and pan-religious in my non-theologian understanding where women are seen, as you said, like we're going to stoke men's sexuality and that is going to impede their uh, spiritual prowess. That's an interesting choice of words. I know, I'm like, did I just say prowess and spirituality? <laughs> Maybe I should say something else. <laughs> right. Well, how about if I, how about if I read it to your listeners? This is from 17th century Japan. Rionin scars her face. As a young woman, Rionin Genso was an attendant to the empress and was known for her beauty and intelligence. When the empress died, she felt the impermanence of life and she decided to become a nun. Rionin traveled to the city of Edo in search of a Zen teacher. The first teacher refused her because of her beauty. Then she asked Master Haku Dotai, who also refused her. He could see her sincere intention, but he too said that her womanly appearance would cause problems for the monks in his monastery. Afterward, she saw some women pressing fabric and she took up a hot iron and held it against her face, scarring herself. Then she wrote this poem on the back of a small mirror. To serve my empress, I burned incense to perfume my exquisite clothes. Now, as a homeless mendicant, I burn my face to enter a Zen temple. The four seasons flow naturally like this. Who is this now in the midst of these changes? She returned to Hakuo and gave him the poem. Hakuo immediately accepted her as a disciple. She became abbess of his temple when he died and later founded her own temple. Before her death, she wrote the following poem. This is the 66th autumn I have seen. The moon still lights my face. Don't ask me about the meaning of Zen teachings. Just listen to what the pines and cedars say on a windless night. I have always found this koan very inspiring because her immense determination to me just shines through. And honestly, there was a tradition of scarring. She wasn't the only person who did this. And I think men sometimes scarred themselves as well in, in this tradition. But it's very clear in this story that she scars her face in order to be allowed to practice with the teacher that she wants to practice with in a monastic setting with monks. I have tried to bring this story to groups of people, usually majority women, over and over again. And it is so disturbing to people who are in those groups that I've actually stopped using it because it's just, I think from our cultural understanding, the idea of someone scarring themselves in order to practice, is just, it's just intolerable. And for whatever reason, I don't have that response to it. I just feel her, her power. 
And I love that she became the abbess of his temple. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I appreciate people obviously being triggered by this story of self-mutilation. And as you were reading it, I was thinking, oh, you know, women are kind of, we're damned if we're beautiful and we're damned if we're not. Because there's also the reverse discrimination, which is, oh, you're not attractive enough. So you're either too attractive or you're not attractive enough, all refracted through men's idea of beauty. Right. And, and that's not the same, or at least back then, it for sure wasn't the same for how men were being assessed. And her disfiguring herself, of course, is, as you said, in our modern psycho-emotional Western view, it's really horrific that she had to do that to practice. And, and it is inspiring. And there are other stories of self-mutilation, right? Weka, the second ancestor, allegedly cutting off his arm from the elbow down to show his determination. But Bodhi Dharma didn't say to Weka, you know, you're just not handsome enough. I'm not going <laughs> to allow you. I'm not going to allow you my cave. Sorry. You know, that's right. You'd be too, too distracting for me. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, you're too distracting for me. So I yeah. don't want you to sit in my cave. And, yeah. and it's interesting how <laughs> I never thought about that before. It is funny. And it's not also funny. a lot of discrimination against women. Right. It was, yeah. It's really true that women's powerful wisdom has been largely hidden. And it's been largely hidden because of this. And, you know, there's a, I, I've been somewhat involved with the organization Sakya Dita which is the Daughters of the Buddha, and it's an international organization with a very strong involvement of women who are living monastically in Asia. And a lot of what they are focused on is that within those cultures, women who have dedicated their lives to the Dharma are entirely treated as second class to monks who have given their lives to the dharma and in fact in some places are literally servants to the monks i'm, I'm not yeah. experienced that myself but I, I have heard from a few friends who have practice in those more traditional buddhist settings even being treated second class by the women who are at the top as well mm. that hierarchy still being in effect for me hierarchy can be liberating and also oppressive. It's not so easy, especially in, I think, the United States taking on the Japanese hierarchical system for Zen to, to parse those. Well, what about hierarchy helps with ego reduction and surrendering and settling and not having to get involved in all these preferences because you're following, I'm telling you to chop the carrots, even if I even if I don't really know how to chop carrots myself and telling you how <laughs> you how to do them. <laughs> and how, how does that, that, you know, that container for the ego is really helpful. And then how is it that that hierarchy is actually oppressive? That's what I look at when it comes to this hierarchy is how is it liberating for me? And when, when do I feel like it's oppressive and we need to speak up about it? In a lot of traditional Buddhist settings, this is actually enshrined in, in the Vinaya in, in the, rules for monks and nuns, that a nun who's been ordained for 70 years is actually junior to a monk that ordained yesterday. And that's exactly what you're talking about. And yet I 
I have found it helpful and I appreciate the kind of seniority or position hierarchy that is practiced at San Francisco Zen Center, where you're right. You're like, okay, you know, somebody's just told me for the umpteenth time how to load the dishwasher, but that's their job. And my job is to do it the way that they want me to do it, regardless of my opinions on the matter. And there's something kind of refreshing about that. But when it's really tied to race or identity or whatever whatever it might be tied to, then it starts to get poisonous, obviously. And I, I, I really do think that as women, and hopefully more and more queer women, trans women, all, all kinds of people are, and, and especially people of color, are coming into positions of full authority and teaching authority, that it is liberating for everyone. Yes, I agree with you. The more the more perspectives are at the table or in the meditation hall, if you will, the more just our organization and our society, uh, our world can be. It, it's a little shocking how slowly it's developed. I have just immense respect for Zenju, Earthland Manual, and yet I don't know, maybe this has changed, but I believe that she's the only fully Dharma-transmitted Black woman priest in our entire lineage. And that's that makes me sad. Yes, me too. I was surprised to find when I was the head student, the head monk at Tassajara in 2018, you get access to all the former head monks or Shuso journals, their um, mm -hmm. accounting of their time as she saw and what's going on. And I, I wrote down in my own personal journal, how many in the first 10 or 15 years of Zen Center's existence, there was only one woman she saw. I wrote it in my she saw log so that the next she saw could see it. And then also we had, I think maybe two or three women tantos or head of practice at Tassajara in the last 20 years. And, and you see that replication of our collective institutional blind spots, right? Whatever mm -hmm. we're not resolving here, our collective karma then is felt more and radiates out and it affects the structure, the system, what's taught, how it's taught, who mm -hmm. gets to teach. You mentioned here in the introduction in the hidden lamp, how you were surprised that there are some of these koans with the women teachers talking about sexuality in their body. Why was that, why was that uh, surprising to you to come across uh, these stories of uh, women teachers and practitioners that had a lot more direct references to sexuality and, and to their bodies? So one of the characteristics of Zen koans, if anyone's ever read them of any kind, is that a lot of them are actually fairly scatological. There's lots of references to shits and, you know, not to mention hitting each other and all kinds of things. They're a little wild. They're a little wild. All kinds but of male humor. A lot of male humor, yes. But there isn't a lot in the traditional koans, either about emotion, although there's some, there's some beautiful ones where someone has an awakening experience and, and weeps. Or, or laughs uproariously, either one. One of the things that I was really struck by in, in looking at these, some of these very old stories about women is that 
many of them are really very much about the body and sexuality. And I, one of the things I wanted to mention is that over the years, I've known many men for whom the hidden lamp has also been a very important resource. And I think there's, I think to anybody who's paying attention, there's just kind of a feeling of wholeness because everything is included. I don't know if it's in the introduction, but it's something I've said a lot that it'd be as if we only knew the family stories of the male side of our family. And we didn't know any stories about grandmothers and great grandmothers. And I mean, that, that hurts everyone. The men being released from having to be men, if you will, right? Released from that toxic masculinity, being able to feel and express themselves. So it doesn't surprise me that men, whether they're Buddhist practitioners or not, reading this book, The Hidden Lamp, would feel like, oh, here, here's the other half of my soul. Here's what's been missing. Right. And how that toxic masculinity has, which of course, patriarchy is, has affected them and, and, and made it difficult for them to be, to be their whole selves. I think the other thing is that there are two things that you could think by reading the traditional koans. One is that the only people who wake up are male <laughs> in male bodies. And the other is that the only real way to practice seriously is as, as a monk in a monastic setting. And I think one of the things that the hidden lamp opens up is what practice and awakening can look like for ordinary people who are not living monastically. And that is a huge percentage of people who are practicing now, male and female and non-binary, the whole, the whole range. And so I think that it's freeing in that way too, to read about an old woman who's washing the dishes and has an awakening and goes, you know, running to her teacher saying, the light shines through my whole body, right? And then her teacher says, does the light shine up your asshole too? And she pushes him and says, I can see you're not enlightened yet. <laughs> this is Jahakuin, who was one of the greatest teachers in Japanese history <laughs> and terrifying to most people. <laughs> he actually was very clearly a, a appreciator of women's wisdom. He, he clear that he had many women disciples who were laywomen. I know when I was an early Zen practitioner, I really thought the real practice happened in the monastery. And I was married and living on a some land in Western Washington. And I thought, oh yeah, all those people down at Tassajara and Green Gulch and City Center, they're doing the real practice. I'm just messing around here. And then when I actually went and did my first practice period, I realized, oh, no, I was practicing all along just as sincerely. And in fact, you can be in the monastery and just be kind of half asleep. I agree with you. I feel that anything can be used as a crutch, including Zazen, including being yes. in the monastery. You can escape wherever you are. I left my, my nine to five life and went to the monastery partly because I, I could, and I felt like I needed to remove myself from my current circumstances and just wanted to immerse myself in that practice. Like Dogen's always reminding us in many of his fascicles about different points of view, right? We all perceive what's happening differently. 
And, and he also says over and over again, why leave behind the seat where you are to go wandering off in dusty lands? And of course, there's, there can be good reasons to go wandering in dusty lands. But I think that's an incredibly important point, that real practice can happen in any circumstance, in any life. Years and years ago, when I was living in Bellingham, Washington, we had a Dharma hall. And so we actually, it was multiple groups of different traditions. And one was the Tibetan tradition. And they invited this teacher from across the border in Canada to come down. It was a woman probably in her 70s. She was a, a refugee from Tibet. She had lots of children and grandchildren and had to work essentially kind of menial jobs. She was, however, a recognized, reincarnated lineage holder in multiple lineages in the Tibetan world. And she got up at four o'clock every morning before her kids and grandkids were awake and did hours of practice before going to whatever shitty job that she had during the day. And it's like, talk about a hidden lamp, right? And talk about somebody practicing in whatever circumstances they found themselves in. And so I think that that can inspire us that we're not limited by our circumstances or by our gender. And I think that the two generations or so people who are in their 30s and 20s, I can't believe that I'm 54 as I'm saying that. I'm like, wow, there's so many people who are younger than me now. <laughs> their attempts to break down the rigidity of gender. Let's have the language reflect my reality rather than imposing your language onto me. That fluidity of mind. And it's a whole new vocabulary for me around, around gender fluidity. And that's what practice is about, right? Just how can I see it from someone else's perspective? And, and the big blind spot of patriarchy or racism, hopefully we'll continue as Buddhists to take the backward step and work on um, illuminating all those blind spots that are causing ourselves and other people harm because they're, they're the walls of mind, right? They're the topsy-turvy inverted views. And when we drop below those, that's, that's nirvana, it's waiting. Right, right at our seat. And I'll just say, I don't know if this will happen at some point, but there was somebody who came to one of our hidden lamp retreats who wants to develop, make a collection of stories like this, a, a sort of hidden lamp of queer stories. Well, wouldn't that be really fantastic? Wouldn't that be really fantastic? Yeah. yeah. So, so hopefully we won't have to wait too long for that. I think I really want to commend San Francisco Zen Center for developing essentially a new form of monasticism where in fact I think I think Norman Fisher used to say it's it's really lay monasticism that people I mean he he and his wife Kathy raised their baby twins at Tassajara right in the middle of formal Zen practice that would be inconceivable in most of the world and yeah. most of the history of Zen. And, and there's a long tradition of that now, right? And I think, I think we can really celebrate that, that that's another way that people can bring their whole selves to practice. Zen Center in many ways has been a tradition breaker when mm -hmm. it comes to, to uh, Zen 
practice in the United States. And I know that you were raised in the um, Unitarian Universalist tradition. And I would like for you just to speak a little bit about what you call trans-religious. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think we have to acknowledge that most Western Buddhists who don't descend from a family where their family was Buddhist and came from some other part of the world, most of us have some elements of trans-religious background. And yes, as you said, I was raised Unitarian Universalist, actually going back a number of generations. And at, at the time as a young adult, and partly it was because kind of the form that Unitarian Universalism took at that point, it was, I had a call to a more intense, full-on connection with a spiritual path that I couldn't, I couldn't find within Unitarian Universalism. Although I think some of that has changed over the years. But for me, I have always had a really strong desire to be engaged with social justice and with environmental justice. I was a botanist for many years working with endangered species. And although we have engaged Buddhism, I always feels like it's kind of an appendage <laughs> to, to, the, to the primary focus in most Buddhist communities. And within Unitarian Universalism, it's absolutely central. That's my experience as well about social justice, climate justice being an appendage. And I think that also has something to do with who are the people in power that are deciding what is actually the Dharma in the Soto Zen tradition that I am part of. And it's curious to me too, because the Buddha is all about liberation. And how could social justice be anything other than liberation, collective liberation, and climate justice, especially since there's so many, because climate justice is racial justice, right? And then we have the whole Bernie Glassman tradition, where he really did make it central. Zen peacemakers and bearing witness. And so I think in a way, it's just that we're so young as an American Western tradition. And I mean, Unitarian Universalism is relatively young, but by relatively young, we're talking about 200 years, <laughs> right? Instead of 50 years. Yeah. You mentioned that you're 100% both <laughs> UU and Buddhist. Where do you see those two traditions converging and how do you mm -hmm. see them diverging? So speaking as a Unitarian Universalist minister, it's really clear that the work of justice, whatever form it takes, is work that can break your heart, absolutely break your heart. And I mean, frankly, being a human being is work that can break your heart. And here are these people who are engaged in that work, but without necessarily practices that can ground them and give them a frame for understanding how to keep going as your heart breaks. I, I just recently had my kind of farewell ceremony from my most recent congregation. And the number of people who came up to me and said, your meditation classes, I'm taking that with me. That's, that's there with me for the rest of my life. 
I know that within Unitarian Universalism, there's a great longing. And the fact that Buddhism is specifically kind of non-theistic as opposed to atheistic or theistic um, means that it's available for people regardless of what their theology is. And so I really, really see how, how much it helps ground and deepen the, the commitments and values that are part of Unitarian Universalism. You know, what does Unitarian Universalism have, have to offer Buddhism? Maybe just the example of a religion that is dedicated to waking up in the world, liberating within the world and within their own communities, looking deeply at themselves. And that is hard work. You mentioned uh, in one of your essays about in the West, there's a divide between people who believe in God and people who don't believe in God. So the theistic and atheistic, and of course, as you just said, Zen is non-theistic. You, you say that uh, the questions that Zen addresses are in a different realm than beliefs about God. Would you unpack that statement? Sure. And I, I, I think it's, I think it's so foreign to the, to our Western minds to imagine that there could be deep and thorough religious and spiritual tradition that simply is not concerned <laughs> with those questions. <laughs> and the Buddha himself said this, right? The people ask the Buddha, well, what about after death? And what about God? And because there were those ideas around at that time too in India. And the Buddha said, I could say, but it's just not relevant. I'm like a doctor. I'm concerned with the suffering of this life and how to overcome that suffering. I think that's really true in our tradition, where I see you, you, and Buddhism having a lot in common. Religious traditions that don't punish for a difference of understanding, but, but each bringing their own gifts. This is a very big deal within Unitarian Universalism because there are atheist UUs and theist you use. And it's not always been pretty between them. And so I feel like the practices of Buddhism allow people who have maybe never had a theistic faith or have lost a theistic faith to have a way to wake up in their lives. It does feel unfortunate that whether you believe in a external being God, or you don't believe in this external being, has produced so much rancor in our society, and we lose, lose sight of just how are we relating to each other as human beings. It's disheartening to me to see this schism in our society. The sad thing, of course, is and in seminary, and I went to a very progressive seminary, but we spent some real time on this, that when you come from uh, monotheistic understanding. Not only are people who perhaps don't believe in your God a problem, but so are people who have a slightly different interpretation of your sacred text or of your God. And there's so many atrocities that have been committed by people who believe in God. And of course, there have been in recent times atrocities committed by 
Buddhist monks against the Muslim population, most especially in Myanmar. Yes. Just the violence of spirit, the violence of if you're not with me, you're against me. And I, I, I just don't understand the atrocities. For me, I understand it from a very psycho-emotional place of you can believe in God, of course. And if you don't do your psycho-emotional work, you're going to hurt people. And we can pretty much use, as we see, we can use almost anything to hurt people. Absolutely. Um, right. And hurt each other. We are in an extraordinarily difficult time. A time of crisis and grief and sorrow. And we just really, really need these practices in order to stay upright in the middle of all of it. Because it's, it's hard. It's really hard and heartbreaking. You said at one point that these practices saved your life. And I feel the same way. And I feel like, oh, that's what we can offer. Something that can be life-saving. And, and that's not a small thing in a time of things falling apart. What are the practices that you feel can help people experience some freedom amid the suffering? How can we practice wholeness amid all of this divisiveness. We could have another hour discussion on that, but I would say, so everybody has different capacity and different affinity for different kinds of practices, but anything that allows you to be fully present with your own suffering, with what you actually feel. I am convinced that if you are willing to do that, then causing suffering for others simply becomes, it isn't a matter of following a set of rules or a set of precepts or a set of commandments. It's inconceivable because you know directly your own suffering. And so, you know, for some people that's meditation, that's not always accessible to everyone, but a willingness to really, as you said, take the backward step. That to me, that's the, that's the most healing. I think spiritual community really matters. I actually think that that's, again, as we go into these extraordinarily choppy waters, that whoever's listening to this, find community and find community of people who are also trying to wake up and live lives of kindness and compassion, wherever you can find it and however imperfectly it manifests. Thank you, Zenshin, for your insight and your warmth, your humor, and your longstanding dedication to freeing all beings so we may all know peace. I really appreciate your time today, and I hope that we can have another conversation sometime in the future. Well, thank you so much. And just my very best to you in this project and others in your life. Thank you for listening to the Spark Zen podcast. I hope you found this conversation illuminating and engaging. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to my Spark Zen Substack newsletter and follow me on Twitter at Spark Zen. The opening and closing music is courtesy of my friend, Jeffrey Cantu and Alexis Georgopoulos. <laughs>